Okay, so recently a group of more than 10,000 Christians signed a public statement of Christian theology. The purpose of the document was to bring clarity about how Christians should respond to the modern public issues of our time. Yeah, here's part of the introduction to this document. Quote, in view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christ's church, we wish to clarify certain key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word, end quote. Yeah, which is like a total mouthful, but like on the surface, that sounds really good. Like, I get that. Right. As a pastor, as a Christian, as a man who takes the word serious, I'm like, okay, I can roll with you. So, of course, like it was expected that Christians would sign and affirm this document. And so far, over 10,000 people have signed it. However, there was a breakdown in the rank and file when many prominent Christian leaders refused to sign. In short order, the Internet blew up with other statements pushing against the document, saying it was incompatible with Christian theology. Twitter, Facebook, blogs, sermons, keynote conference speakers, they were kind of all arguing back and forth. Essentially, a theological civil war had begun, with more than 10,000 Christians on one side and a small group of influential leaders on the other, all over one document. And what was this document they were arguing about? It was called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Each episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets social justice. Which is an important topic for LTN, right? It's part of what we do and who we are. Social justice, internships, and Christian community. Yeah, and I mean, this story has impacted us. And so today, we're going to look at the story of this statement on social justice. Why was it written? Why did some leaders choose not to support it? And what should we as Christians do about social justice? Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. There is a very loud cry being raised that we're not even Christians who have the gospel if we don't include the social gospel, which means earthly, temporal equity for everyone. What you just heard was a sermon by John MacArthur. Yeah, MacArthur is the president of Master Seminary in California. He's a best-selling author. He also has a, a whole host of younger Christians, pastors of all races and ethnicities that respect him because he made expository preaching really popular in the 70s. Yeah, MacArthur was also one of the initial signers of the statement on social justice in the gospel. In fact, the statement came out along with a series of sermons and blog posts MacArthur wrote. Here's another clip from his sermon. And I would add as well, wherever anybody has been treated unjustly, they ought to be treated justly. Where anybody has been treated cruelly, they ought to be treated kindly. And what he's saying there is not a controversial statement. That's the basics of living out your Christianity. It's love your neighbor as yourself. Right. I mean, no Christian is going to disagree with that. So why then was there so much controversy over the statement on social justice? Well, I think first we need to turn to a well-known story. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you probably already know the setup. An expert in God's law asks Jesus how to live forever. The answer is to love God and your neighbor. And then the man asks, who is my neighbor? 
And in verse 30, Jesus replies with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, the priest and the Levite probably believe they are keeping God's law. It was unlawful for them to touch a dead body without then having to go through purification. It's not shocking to these men to pass by on the other side. But what's shocking is what Jesus says happens next. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Then Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And in this story, I think Jesus gives us a very clear and very simple way for us to navigate this topic of social justice, which easily becomes an overwhelmingly complex conversation. Absolutely, bro. And in essence, giving clarity was exactly what the drafters of the statement on social justice wanted to do. The things that that are going on publicly in our culture that are needing theological perspectives and voices. So this is Tom Askell. Uh, He's a senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and he's the executive director of Founders Ministries. He was also one of the initial people who helped craft the statement on social justice like racial issues, men and women issues, sexuality issues. Why don't we get together in Dallas and let's talk. And I think there was 13 or 14 guys that met for a day, but we just got to get together and say, what do you see? What are your concerns? And we found out that we all shared very common concerns about some of the things that were happening. So when Tom says they were concerned about some things, he actually cited three things in particular. The first was the Revoice Conference, a conference which was about affirming LGBT Christians. And the concern was that the conference identifies these Christians not just by their faith, but by their sexual orientation. For example, gay Christian. The second concern was the MLK 50 Conference, which was held to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. And the concern there was that this conference praised a man who, though he accomplished many amazing things that transformed our society, he also had serious theological and moral compromises. The third thing was a statement made by a professor at King's College in Manhattan who tweeted this, From a black church perspective, evangelicals have never had the gospel. And when asked to clarify, he explained that he believes that white evangelicalism has never actually grasped the gospel of salvation. These three things came together and made these men very concerned about the future of where the church was heading. Well, we wanted to do something. We really didn't know what to do. All of us had preached or taught in our various circles of influence, tried to communicate things that we were concerned about and what we understand the Bible to teach about these issues. But there wasn't much of a platform beyond just our own local deals. And they decided that the best thing to do would be to write up a statement that would succinctly express their theological affirmations as well as their concerns. And I was given the task of of doing the primary draft work on this. So I I did that work and I, I bounced it off some others as well, some friends. 
But then we we set this before all of the men who were in that meeting. And, you know, we went back and forth on it and tried to come up with something that's a consensus. So the statement was released to a small audience in August and was officially published in September. So that was the genesis of the statement. We wanted to put it out in hopes that it would provoke some good conversation and at least arrest the attention of many evangelicals. And as they hoped, folks started signing it. Before its official release, it already had more than 75 signatures, but not everyone was on board. When a statement was released, some notable black and brown Christians spoke up talking about what hurt and what wasn't accurate. Folks like Jamar Tisby. It's these initial writers and signatories asserting the power to define theological orthodoxy. Mm. Thabiti. I don't know that they have struck a nerve as much as they have sort of aggravated a, a, a consternation that was already there. And they were all saying one thing, we cannot in good conscience agree with this statement. And I think everybody expected that, right? But what people didn't expect was notable white Christian leaders to speak up. One of the people who disagreed with the statement was Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Al Mohler. Yeah, okay, so Southern Seminary has chapel on a regular basis. And this one particular week, Moeller decides that he's going to host a Q&A, something a little bit different for the campus. And so students start sending in all these different questions that they want their seminary president to answer. And one of the topics that just kept coming up was the statement on social justice. And the students wanted to know, Moeller, why do you not support this document? It's no secret to say I'm a I'm a very conservative thinker when it comes to the questions of politics and cultural engagement. And so at first, like his disagreement with the statement doesn't seem to make sense. The theology in the statement is actually very conservative, which is, you know, what he would affirm. So it makes sense for Mueller's convictions to line up with the statement. And in some areas they do. And yet Mueller didn't sign it. And He tells the students, there are two reasons why I can't sign this document. And here's the first one. The statement itself uses language like entitled victims. Certain people should not be told that they are entitled victims of of, of social structures. Well, certainly we have an entire entitlement, identity, politics, victim, culture, and industry out there. The reality is there are also real victims who really are victims. The section of the statement, which Moeller is referring to, is Article 12 on Race and Ethnicity, which says, We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. And for Moeller, he thinks using language like entitled victims has implications far beyond ethnicity because he then brings up something that doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity, but it has rocked a ton of church communities lately, child sexual abuse. I mean, there are real victims. There is no truth in saying they're not real victims. And uh, there were all kinds of structures of lies and oppression and and cover-up that uh, not only denied their, uh, their injury, and, and it's hard to come up with an adequate word for that, uh, but also perpetuated uh, the protection of the, of the abusers so that even other children, more children, could be abused. 
Like Mueller knows Christians aren't capable of stopping all sin and all oppression. This world isn't going to be made right this side of heaven. But what Mueller is saying is that doesn't mean we should be like the priest and the Levite and pass by on the other side of the road when we see someone who is a real victim of real oppression. And here's the reality. Dr. Mueller is absolutely right. We don't speak this way about victims of sexual abuse. I don't think many people are going to call them entitled victims. We don't speak this way about people who are victims of human trafficking. For many of us, we're not really upset about the idea of God's justice being carried out in the broader culture in this way. Which actually brings us to the second reason that Mueller wouldn't sign. Because for some of us, the rub has nothing to do with social justice as a whole, but rather one very particular aspect. We're almost always talking about race. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Sophia Veneziano from Columbus, Ohio. I made an impact on social justice by serving for a year with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Today's episode is where the gospel meets social justice. More than 10,000 Christians have signed a document called the Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel. But there's a handful of prominent leaders who say they won't sign it. We've heard from one of these leaders, Al Mohler of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah. And another one of these leaders is Dr. Russell Moore. In almost every case, we're not really even talking about quote-unquote social justice. We're not even talking about social engagement broadly. We're almost always talking about race. Okay, so Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And these clips are actually from another podcast called The Holy Post. And he believes that the majority of pushback on social justice isn't even about social justice. He believes it's actually a pushback on race and how we talk about race. And to make his point, Moore cites a pretty compelling example of how he knows Christians, including Christians who say they dislike social justice, actually do care very deeply about social justice. Some of the the very people who would say this are the people who have talked about, and rightly so, uh, abortion, the systemic public problem of abortion, not not abortion simply as a a personal uh, issue. We we don't simply say, well, Jesus can forgive people uh, for abortion, therefore let's not worry about whether or not the law recognizes an unborn child as a person. They don't do that. So we're okay with social justice in regards to the justice of saving unborn lives, But that is not always the case when it comes to justice around issues of race. You know, Jamal, why do you think that that is? Why are we as Christians having such a hard time talking about this issue of race? Because it forces them to listen to people who have had experiences who probably have a a different perspective on history than they have. When I think about just growing up, what I learned and read in school, it was a very white perspective. And when you grow up all your life with a a white perspective, a a white history, and suddenly you're confronted with a different perspective that is uh, seems to be out of the blue and people have pain when they're talking about it and they want you to acknowledge it. That's just a deep level of work that has to happen, and most people aren't willing to do that work. 
but there's like this disconnect between the way that Christians are pro-social justice on issues of abortion, but they're silent, vague, or fractured when it comes to justice around issues of race. And in fact, according to Moore, this disconnect is not a new one. And what's really disheartening is the way that the church repeats the same problems over and over and over again with the exact same talking points. So if, if you were in a Southern Baptist or, or Southern Presbyterian context in 1845 and the question of slavery comes up, the response is going to be, you're distracting us from the gospel. Uh, we need to be the people who are sharing the gospel and, and evangelizing the world and not to get involved in these social issues like slavery. Here's part of what the section statement on racism says. We emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping the wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of scripture. Historically, such things tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel, end quote. So what he's saying is that the argument that social justice is, quote, a distraction from the gospel, it may actually just be a smokescreen to mask the fact that there are issues that we just don't want to personally be involved with or responsible for. Exactly. And he believes the pushback on social justice, that it's unchristian, it's liberal, it's Marxist, it's a distraction, is a way to change the topic away from our personal sin of racism. So then there's this question, right? If that's true, does that mean that everyone who signed the document is secretly a racist? I'm not the type of person that denies the history of racism in this country. So this is Kyle Bowers, and Kyle's actually not his real name. He actually asked to remain anonymous just due to his field of work. He lives right here in Louisville, and he's one of the many folks who actually did sign the statement. You know, through a few blog posts and I think a podcast, I heard that it that had been released and then went about reading it, you know, found myself in agreement with most of it. Again, I want to be clear that I don't agree with every word, but I also agree with enough of it that I was comfortable signing it. And for Kyle, one of his main concerns is the way the church has adopted language that is not in the Bible. Like microaggressions, for instance. Like, I've actually heard Christians use the word microaggression. And I'm like, how about, like, Jesus taught about sins of the heart and how if you lust for someone, that's the same as adultery. Or if you have uh, hate in your heart for someone, that's the same as murder. So it's like Jesus gave us way better language to use, like sins of the heart or you know, just sin, like it just sin. That's a good enough word. We don't need if we get too political with using some of the language that is being used on every media outlet right now throughout all of culture. You know, if, if we're wanting to preach again, word for word, verse for verse out of the Bible, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If we're doing that, I don't know why we need to even borrow language from secular culture. And when it comes to the topic of race in particular, there's one thing that he simply cannot endorse. I don't think that the, the sins of, of history of any particular race or group should be applied to individuals that live today. You as a Christian, you're alone with God. Your individual walk with Christ is your individual walk with Christ. Secular critical race theory, it makes everything a collectivized discussion. So it, it takes away from individuals. Man, I really appreciate Kyle's perspective. And honestly, 
Cal is trying to think through this biblically, right? Uphold biblical language, pointing essentially to this idea that, yeah, Moses did say, a child shall not bear the penalty of a father's sin. And yet at the same time, we have to wrestle with other texts like Nehemiah chapter one, where Nehemiah prays and asks God to forgive him and the nation of Israel, as well as their fathers for their sins. And sometimes I I wonder, while I may differ and say, I think that repentance, corporate repentance is important and necessary. What most people are after, at least what I want to see as an African-American is lamenting true brokenness over what has happened in the past and a true effort as well as curiosity on how we can make it together. So let's go back to Al Mohler at the seminary Q&A, because I think that this is what he was trying to get at. Remember how I said that there were two reasons that Mohler wouldn't sign? Well, he made it clear that race was the second issue. I can't associate with any assertion that we do not have a massive problem in the society and in the church with claims of racial superiority and with the fact that remnants and ongoing manifestations of those claims of white racial superiority continue. And here's the thing, as he said this, like you could almost sense like the audible sigh in the room, like, oh great, here we go. Al's playing the race card. And so like as if to shake everyone in the room to their senses, he goes on to remind everyone what campus they are on. I'm the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the president of a seminary established by slaveholders as a part of a convention established to allow slaveholders to continue to send missionaries and be slaveholders. And Mueller believes our history leaves lasting impressions. And to make that clear, he went on to tell the story of a man named Joseph Emerson Brown, an important name for the seminary. Joseph Emerson Brown saved this seminary in the 1870s from its absolute financial demise. Joseph Emerson Brown was a United States Senator from Georgia, and he was the Confederate Governor of Georgia. So in his honor, the seminary has since named a title on their board after him, the Joseph Emerson Brown Chair of Christian Theology. And President Al Mohler, he's the one who currently holds this title. And here's the thing, like, as I listen to this Q&A, When he starts talking about this, you can like hear the change in his voice. Like he's been really passionate and declarative up to this point, but then he gets here and you can almost just hear the shame. Joseph Emerson Brown once, and probably far more than once, notably argued that the one thing every white man knows, no matter how low his state, is that he is the better of every black man. This is the history I have to walk around with. I am the Joseph Emerson Brown Professor of Christian Theology. Put that on your title. And so here's the reality. Like, Al Mohler was not the man who made that terrible statement that every white man knows that he's better than every black man. But the truth is that Al Mohler now has a title that exalts that man. Yes, he does. And people stand firmly on both sides of that. I've heard people say, hey, change, Southern should change the name as an act of repentance. And I heard other people say that Southern shouldn't. What I appreciate from Moeller is you can hear in his voice as he's saying it, and you can experience 
come wrestling with that reality. I don't believe I could possibly, honestly, give assent to a, a statement that could be read and has been interpreted by some as, as denying this reality and the continuing urgency of this reality. And when I think about this issue as Christians, it's really not to demonize people who have signed the statement or who agree with the statement. My hope is that I can talk to people who signed the statement without a fear that drives me to think that, man, this person hates me and my black skin because they signed the statement. And I'll hope that someone who signed a statement can listen to this episode as well as be able to talk to me without the reverse fear of saying, you know what, he's a Marxist or he's holding to a worldly political standpoint. And I think that, you know, for many of us, you know, speaking as a white man, like guys like me find ourselves going, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to live in the wake of the decisions that my ancestors made? And what is my responsibility now in this moment, living in this year in light of all of these things? I think that starts with reading books from authors that are different than the ones we usually read. Going maybe even to places in town that we don't normally go to means worshiping in communities that are different communities that we typically don't worship in. And beginning to do the relational work of building friendships that are outside of our typical circles. Because the bottom line is like, this is a relational problem and the only way we're gonna solve it is relationally. And so, where has all of this gotten us? Well, not surprisingly, we've been here before. This is not a new debate for our country. Oh my goodness, this has been raging for over 100 years. So this is Sky Jatani. Sky was the former managing editor for Christianity Today's Leadership Journal. Of course, Christianity Today was founded by Billy Graham. Sky's an author, a speaker, and also an incredible scholar. And he says this exact same debate was happening in America at the turn of the 20th century. So towards the beginning of the 20th century, all these modern ideas and theories were coming out of Europe. Things like psychology and evolution and anti-supernaturalism. And there were some Christians in the United States who said, hey, you know, we, we got to kind of accept all these new ideas, which means rethinking our understanding of the faith. And they abandon a lot of Orthodox Christianity. They abandon the resurrection and the virgin birth and the authority of scripture. And what they were left with were the social teachings of Jesus. And in reaction to that came the fundamentalists who said, no way, we need to hang on to the fundamental teachings of the Bible, of Orthodox Christianity, and the salvation of souls and the belief in miracles and the resurrection. And so you had one group saying it's all about upholding modern social issues and another group saying, it's all about upholding the authority of Scripture and what the Bible says. But the latter group, the fundamentalists, didn't just say, you've taken social action too far. They just got rid of it altogether. But in response, they decided any of this social dimension of the gospel, that's a sign that you're on a slippery slope away from orthodoxy. And they created this false dichotomy. And that is still with us today, where people who feel like if you say anything about racism or poverty or social injustice, oh, you're, you're just giving up on the gospel. You're going to give up on the resurrection and the virgin birth next. And so we've created this boogeyman that says if you go down that road at all, even when it's biblically justifiable, you're going to abandon the core teachings of the faith. And Scott believes part of this false dichotomy we've created is due to our English translations of the Bible. 
one of the problems we have is translation. The word justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually the exact same root word as righteousness. And we use the word righteous all the time when speaking about our relationship with God or our morality, but it's the exact same word that's translated as justice in the Old and New Testaments. In Matthew 23, 23, we see Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And he mentions to them, hey, you pay a tenth of a mint, a deal, a cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And in fact, justice, according to Skye, it's one of the most uh, frequent issues brought up throughout the Bible. You think about the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That literal translation is after justice. You think about 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the matters of first importance is the gospel. I'm like, is that all we're supposed to preach about? If for the first 14 chapters he dealt with other subjects in the Christian life? No, the gospel is the light that shines on all these other areas, right? Part of the gospel is not just the gospel of the cross. The gospel of the cross is incredible. It's what saves us. It's what keeps us. It's what we don't stray from. But the gospel is also a gospel of grace as well as a gospel of God's kingdom, that the kingdom of God is near. So if social justice is something God brings up time and time again, why are we as Christians fearful of it? And Sky says that sometimes the answer sadly, is politics. There are certain Christians who will advocate for pro-life issues, pro-family issues, religious liberty, freedom of speech. They object when Christians are silenced or marginalized on secular campuses. All of those are social justice issues. But when it's about racism or poverty or immigration or something that's perceived to be on the political left, that's social justice. That's a diversion from the gospel. That's unnecessary for us to be involved in. And so when we talk about social justice, we need to ask ourselves, are we talking about social justice from a biblical perspective, loving our neighbors ourselves because that is what God has done for us and what he commands? Or are we simply referring to it through the lens of man-made political parties and ideologies, which is exactly the distinction that seminary president Al Mohler wants to make clear. So do I believe in social justice in a Marxist version? No, and I'll fight that with every fiber of my being. Do I believe in social justice as meaning where God's people are, there must be an increasing realization of the justice of God in the society of which they are a part? The answer is yes. What President Mueller just did was simply genius. Um, he has did what I think all Christians need to do. We need to be patient in our beliefs and steadfast in our beliefs while appropriately nuancing. So what it all boils down to at the end of the day is this. Regardless of our politics, regardless of our feelings about the term social justice, what are we as Christians called to? And for that answer, I want to share some thoughts with you from one more person. Stay with us. On today's episode of the Love That Neighborhood podcast, we're exploring the important issue of social justice. And we're talking about this issue at this really big macro scale. But at the end of the day, this issue of justice, it's really just about caring for our neighbors. Well, how are we supposed to care for our neighbors if we don't really understand them? 
What makes them tick? What are their struggles and hardships in life as well as their hopes and their dreams? Well, if you would like to get to know your neighbors and the people around you at a much deeper level, I wanna recommend our other podcast. Love Thy Neighborhood presents the Enneacast. Every episode, we explore how you relate to God and everyone else. So to listen to the Enneacast, just search for Love Thy Neighborhood presents the Enneacast in whatever podcast app you prefer. Or head over to our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash Enneacast. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Today's story is where the gospel meets social justice. We've talked about race, fundamentalism, and politics. Now what? Where do we go from here? Should we as Christians reject any efforts to correct societal injustice? Or... Should we all be taking up our signs and protesting every injustice we see? What is the way forward? Be full of grace and truth when dealing with social justice issues. This is Bob Russell. Bob is the retired senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I actually spent most of my childhood under his preaching. And recently, Bob was speaking to a small congregation that was known for being very proactive in their community. You know, 50 years ago, churches pretty much ignored racism and poverty and compassion for the disenfranchised. But in recent years, the evangelical churches are doing a much better job and we're providing food for the hungry, endorsing racial reconciliation programs and rebuilding homes in the inner city. And we should do that because Jesus said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and welcome the stranger. But then, like a loving dad, he offered them a warning. And I think Bob's warning isn't just for this church. I think it's for us too. But here's my concern. We emphasize grace to the point that we say little about truth. Churches are shouting grace and whispering repentance and we get out of balance. Folks, social justice is not the gospel. Social justice is the byproduct of the gospel. And in wanting to make sure that everyone understood his point, He did what any good preacher does. He gave specific examples from Scripture. Remember in John 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He was concerned about hungry people. But you know what happened the next day? The next day the crowds swelled, and the people came. They wanted free breakfast, but Jesus refused to feed them again. And he said, I'm not a bread Messiah. The bread that I feed you comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never go hungry. He who comes to me will never be thirsty. And verse 66 of John 6 says, from that day forth, many people walked back, left him, and walked no more with him. They wanted the bread, but not the message of eternal life. And it is so easy for a church to slip into being full of grace and neglect truth, and nobody gets saved. The Bible says that we love others because God first loved us. Our motivation for selfless, sacrificial love is because of Christ. And we should be quick to make that clear to others when we help people. I'm doing this for you because of what God did for me. We need to actually say out loud the truth that we know in our hearts. It isn't enough to simply be kind without ever sharing our motivation. And so Bob gives one very clear piece of advice on social justice. When it comes to social justice, stay balanced. Truth and grace. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Yeah, Jesse, we build bridges to send things across them. 
And so churches, when we do social good, it should be ultimately to send the truth across them, to send them to the gospel. So we need that balance. We don't just do good for good sake. Jesus said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven. Yeah, I've heard it said that the Christian life is like an airplane with two wings. One wing is social action while the other is biblical truth. And for the airplane to fly correctly, it must stay balanced between word and deed. Be people of both grace and truth. So what does it look like to be people of grace and truth? So actually, I want to leave this whole world of debate behind because I think that at the end of the day, the answer that we're looking for can actually be found in this simple story. So this is actually a story from season one of our podcast, but it's a story of a guy named Caleb. One year, a guy named Caleb came to serve with us. Now, here's what you need to know about Caleb. He was 18 years old, fresh out of high school, and he came to serve with us for an entire year. Now, at that time, our guys in the program that were serving with us, they lived in an apartment inside of a homeless shelter, which is like a crazy conversation to have with mom and dad, right? Now, around the same time that Caleb came to serve with us, this guy named Joey moved in. Now, Joey was in his early 60s. He was an ex-convict. He had been in prison for 10 years for armed robbery. And Joey was just like a bad dude. You don't mess with him. Like, he's always irritated. He did not like all of our Jesus talk. He was frustrated by us. So one of the things that we encouraged our interns to do is, you know, you can't be friends with everybody. There's like a limit to your relational energy. So just pick like one person that you're really going to invest in. And so Caleb comes to me and he goes, hey, I've got my one person. I'm going to invest in Joey. And I'm like, dude, you make the worst decisions. And Joey's just like not interested. Joey avoids him. Like Caleb sits down next to him at a meal and Joey's like would get up and leave. Caleb would go outside to sit next to Joey while he had a cigarette. And Joey would just like be like, oh, I've been meaning to quit. And he would just get up and leave. So this goes on for a while, but then like this thing happened, like this miraculous thing, like the theologians call it a football season. So one day I'm in my office, this call comes in over the radio and they're like, there's a fight breaking out in the day shelter, everybody downstairs. So we all like run downstairs and we can hear this yelling. And as we get closer, we suddenly realize it's Joey and Caleb and they're screaming at each other. And it turns out that these two guys were yelling at each other because they were actually just talking trash about each other's football teams. They've got like a smirk on their face and like they're laughing and they're like enjoying it. And slowly, like these two guys became friends. Like, and they were like the oddest couple, like this young 18 year old kid, this like 60 year old convict. And they were just like always together. And they're spending more and more time together. Joey comes into my office one day and he like plops down in the chair and he goes, I just don't get it. I don't get why this kid is living in a homeless shelter, hanging out with a bunch of drunks and convicts and addicts when he could be off at school, having the time of his life. He could be chasing girls. He could be chasing money. He could be going after a great job. It doesn't make any sense. The only way it makes sense is if this Jesus he keeps telling me about is real. And if this Jesus is real, then I want this Jesus too. And so like that day, man, we saw Joey give his life to the Lord. And the thing is this, is like every now and then the Lord gives you that rare person who truly does change overnight. And Joey 
was that person for us. So I actually called Caleb to ask him about this. Caleb. Jesse. What's up, bro? Hey, man. And so I asked Caleb, like, did you see as much transformation as I saw? After he came to Christ and, like, really turned his life over to Jesus, he seems far more loving and, like, patient in a way or just more willing to engage in conversation with people in a way that, like, showed that he loved them and not just, I don't know, pick a fight or argue or, yeah, it was, it was like night and day. And, like, it was just astounding to see so much change in Joey's character. I also wanted to ask Caleb, like, why did Joey mean so much to you? You know, like, why is your best friend valuable to you? And it's like, because they are, like, <laughs> because they're there, you know? Like, I know it's such a cliche to say, like, the more you put in, like, the more you get out of it. And, like, that's what happened in my relationship with Joey. Like, I just kept showing up and trying to get to know him. And we got to talk about things that really matter. And we got to talk about our spiritual lives and and believing in Jesus. And and we bonded over sports and whatever. But, like, we were just there for each other. Joey, Joey and I were, like, really present in each other's lives. He got to be there to see me go off to college and see me start at school and get involved with things on campus. I remember talking on the phone and telling him I got invited to like kind of become a student leader with this and he he just like lost it. Like he was so excited. He was like, oh man, like they they got a good one. Like he was just so proud. So that phone call was actually the last significant conversation that Joey and Caleb ever had. You know, Joey had just done a lot of drugs and drank a lot of alcohol through his life and eventually you know, his body just shut down and passed away, you know. But before he died, I went and spent time with him in the hospital, and he would just, like, take the last of his strength, you know, raise his finger in the sky and look me in the eye and just be like, the Lord has been so good to me. And I'm amazed at that because that all happened because of this 18-year-old kid who loved Joey in both word and deed. Like, Caleb didn't just care for Joey's physical needs as a homeless convict. He talked with him about scripture, about Jesus, about the truth of the gospel. But speaking truth wasn't all that Caleb did either. I mean, he also lived in a homeless shelter. He spent the majority of his time with guys like Joey. He cared about issues of addiction. He cared about issues of homelessness. I mean, he loved Joey the way that he would want someone to love him if he were in Joey's situation. No, that's a great story just on the power of of love and the power of being present. And uh, I just wonder, even for for us as as Christians, even people who have signed a statement and who have not signed a statement, what it would look like just to to love each other in that way. Yeah, because sometimes we're just going to disagree. I mean, that's just the way that family works. I mean, because the reality is this. We, as the church, are a big dysfunctional family, but like we're still family and we all need to stay at the table with each other and keep working through these things. And the other thing is this, like, all this talk about social justice and what it means and what it doesn't mean, I mean, is this something that we as Christians should be putting this much energy toward? Well, Sky Jatani actually thinks yes. Is it important to talk about social justice? It's like saying, is it important to be talking about loving our neighbor? Yeah, it's essential because in Scripture, our relationship with God is never separated from our relationship with the people around us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I get it. Like, there are some places and contexts and people where, like, you hear the word social justice and, like, it's just like a bomb goes off in the relationship, you know, and it breaks down the conversation. And Sky gets this, too. 
I really don't care if someone uses the term social justice or not, a rose by any other name, right? As Shakespeare said, if people care about their neighbor, if they love their neighbor, if they believe that being a follower of Jesus Christ and seeking his mission in the world includes transformation of that which is wrong and evil and unjust, I don't care what you call it. Call it whatever you like. That's what we're called to. Yeah, and you know who else doesn't care? Our neighbors, the people in our city that need our love and our presence. Like no one at the homeless shelters or in the strip clubs or in foster care or nursing homes. None of them care about this debate. It does not matter to them. What matters to them are two simple things. Are you going to show up? And when you do, will you love me with your actions and your words the way that you say Jesus loves me? In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus concludes by asking the expert of the law, which of these proved himself to be a true neighbor? The expert answered, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. To hear the full story of Caleb and Joey and their relationship, go back to episode number three of this podcast, where the gospel meets homelessness. If you'd like more resources on this topic or to hear past episodes of this podcast, visit our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. Hey, one more thing. We found our interviews with Tom Aspel and Sky Jatani just to be totally fascinating. And we decided we want to let you guys hear those interviews in their entirety. So if you would like to hear those interviews, simply head over to our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Tom Askell, Kyle Bowers, Sky Jatani, and Caleb Butler. Make sure to check out Sky Jatani's podcast, The Holy Post. They're exploring what life is like for Christians in a post-Christian America. Sky is one of our very favorite podcasters. Again, it's called The Holy Post. Thanks also to Al Mohler, Russell Moore, and Bob Russell. To hear the full audio from which their clips were taken, head over to the resource section on our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Jamal Williams. And our producer, technical director, editor, and secret transformer is Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, Kevin McLeod, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.